And so that's what I told myself. That's what I told myself for three years. I said, okay, can you make it through 15 minutes? Okay, great. Do you think you could do something in the next 15 minutes that will be beneficial? And the next 15 minutes, and will that be beneficial? And the whole experience was just intervals of what I could do in 15 minutes. And I found that I was made of sterner stuff than I gave myself credit for. And that's what really kept me going. That's what kept me away from suicidality and self-annihilation and self-erasure, which I would later on come to find. You must be some kind of therapist. I am some kind of therapist, and I'm about to take you on a journey through the inner wilderness. I've invited brilliant guests from all walks of life to join me as we investigate, illuminate, and inspire transformation in ourselves, intimate relationships, and the social ecosystems we are constellated in. What you are about to hear may surprise you, so hang on to your earbuds for a hefty dose of sanity in a chaotic world. I am Stephanie Wynn, a licensed marriage and family therapist, branching out and building bridges between psychology and everything else under the sun. It's my honor to have you along for the ride. Let's get started. Today, my guest is Corey Drayton. I originally found his conversations through the Signal Productions with Travis Brown, uh, the Woke Reformation series. Corey is a fine artist and an author with 24 years as a cinematographer. And he's also a cancer survivor, a lifelong learner and autodidact. I'm so excited to see where our conversation today goes. Welcome, Corey. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so good to be with you. Um, So you have many interesting conversations available on YouTube and many more to come, I'm sure. Can you give our listeners kind of a brief bio? Sure. Um, my goodness, where do we even start, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm a fine artist and cinematographer, as you said. Uh, I do uh, reside in the Pacific Northwest now, but not originally from here. I'm originally from the UK. Uh, grew up in a lot of different places. So that kind of leads to why I'm interested in so many different things. Uh, because when you're exposed to so much from a young age, you just become a sponge and you want to absorb absolutely everything you can. But um, I've been really lucky. I've had a cool career. I've, uh, I've shot for Rolling Stone. Uh, I've shot for the Times of London and Velt. Um, I've worked on feature um, documentary films that have won Academy Awards like The Cove. I've got another one coming up called The Invisible Machine. Um, really have led a charmed life. So uh, just continuing to make art and continuing to learn everything I possibly can. I think it must say a lot about you that you say that you've had a charmed life, even though at the age of 40, you recently survived a battle with stage four cancer. Um, Before we started recording, you said that really that experience was life-changing for you and made you value the time that you have and feel even more resolved in your commitment to being radically authentic, um, which is one of the reasons why you have so many fascinating conversations where you're representing the unique perspective that is only yours to tell. So let's talk today a little bit about your cancer journey. You clearly were diagnosed at a young age. This must have been um, earth shattering for you. Can you tell us the story from the beginning? More than happy to. Yes. Uh, what I tell people now uh, about having cancer is I look them straight in the eyes and I say, yeah, cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me 
because for most of my life, I was completely inauthentic. I had no boundaries. Uh, I wasn't showing up in the world as me. I was doing everything possible to suppress and hide myself so that I wouldn't be abandoned by the tribe. And I had no tribe, right? So um, when it comes to the beginning of, uh, of my cancer story, as it were, the first time I noticed symptoms was a very long time ago. I was 18. Uh, when I first noticed that something was wrong. Uh, without being too graphic, uh, I noticed that um, I was, there, was, there was blood behind me when uh, I would go to uh, the bathroom. And I first brought this up with my GP, my doctor, general practitioner, and he said, oh, you know, it's probably just a fissure. Don't worry about it. It's completely normal. Here's a test kit. Take this home. Bring this back to the lab's and uh, we'll get back to you with our findings. And I was so terrified about what it might be that I just let it go. I never, ever uh, followed through with that test. And I, I talked myself out of the possibility that this could be something really grim and serious. Because at that point in my life, I'd already had two near-death experiences from severe asthma attacks. The first one I had, I was eight years old, and I nearly died from it. So I had never dealt with the trauma of that experience. Uh, it was something that was uh, very much suppressed because I didn't come from a family where you could express yourself. There was no, hey, I feel X, Y, or Z. Can we all sit down and talk about it? I had to manage those feelings on my own, and I had to do it in a way that didn't show up as inconvenient for my parents. So my way of dealing with the possibility of having a serious illness was to pretend that it was probably no big deal and it would clear up on its own. So I ended up doing that for most of my adult life as the symptoms would come and go, and I never followed up on having them checked out. Now, skip forward to... Uh, my 30s, my mid-30s. I'm living in Portland. I'm in a bad relationship. I'm working way too much. I'm not taking care of myself because I'm in this extremely demanding industry, film industry, which has this, um, oh, you could call it an axiom. You could call it a uh, identity addiction around overwork. So if you're not killing yourself on set, if you're not drinking yourself to death at the end of 15-hour days, and if you aren't compromising your health to be working, then you're not applying yourself, right? You're not uh, doing your due diligence and showing up as a technician in the film industry. It's this sort of, I almost think of it as trauma-based mind control. It's a bunch of very unhealthy, very damaged, very wounded people working themselves to death to make peanuts on projects that cost hundreds of millions to produce. Um, so there definitely is a kind of cult hierarchy in the industry that I was fully on board with, and I was not taking care of myself. So the symptoms come back with a vengeance, and it gets to the point where I'm in so much pain. My right side is flared up. I can barely sit down. I can barely drive. Um, and when I look at my body, I can tell that the right part of me is a little bit bigger than the left part of me. Something is definitely wrong. And if I feel certain parts of my body, I can feel there's something there that wasn't there before. So I finally go in and have this thing 
checked out. And the doctor who does an exam on me says, it's just a fissure. Don't worry about it. It was the exact same thing that the very first doctor who ever examined me said when I was 18. So again, I said, okay, well, hey, doctor is the expert. He knows what he's talking about. Probably fine. But it kept getting worse and worse and worse. And the pain got worse and the bleeding got worse. So I went back in and I said, look, um, I think you're wrong. Obviously, something is going on. I can look at, look at my body. I can see something that is growing out of me. This is not a fissure. There's something, there's a mass. There's something that wasn't there before. So they said, okay, fine. We'll do a biopsy. We'll have a look and we'll, we'll get back to you. So they did. And they came back with me with, they came back to me with the results. And they said, yeah, you have stage four colorectal adenocarcinoma. We need to get you into an MRI. We need to get you a PET scan. The whole works, everything. And so over a series of scans, they figured out that it was becoming prostate cancer and it had it was stage four, it metastasized. So all the swelling that I was dealing with, those are my lymph nodes swelling up. It was in my bloodstream. It was going to every single system, every single organ in my entire body. Um, so when the diagnosis came down, I was 36 and they said I had a 27% chance of surviving. Very, very grim odds. Uh, for someone that age. So, um, yeah, they just given me the news and immediately I'm going into, okay, I'm taking this seriously. I'm taking a health issue that I'm having seriously for the first time in my life because cancer, huge deal. I had, I had, uh, I edited a documentary film for a guy many years back who made a film about his cancer experience. Incidentally, it was the exact same type of cancer that I ended up getting diagnosed with. And he did that to kind of process the whole thing and prepare people for what it's like to get that kind of news. And that's all well and good, but when you're actually in the situation yourself, hearing those words for the first time, the, yeah, the, it's a cliche, but the world completely stops. Everything comes to a screeching halt. And all you can think about is what is going to happen to me and what is the impact of this thing that I'm going through? What is that impact on the people around me, the people that I care about? Are they going to have to watch me waste away in chemo for the next three years? Are they going to stay? Are they going to leave? Like all of these things were just swirling around in my head. And at that time, um, because I was really pushing myself so hard with work and I've still at the same time was barely making it, I said, well, how am I going to be able to support myself? How am I going to be able to function in this situation? So I go immediately into problem solving and crisis reaction mode, right? I didn't give myself the opportunity to just feel what the diagnosis felt like. And I immediately went into how do I solve problems and how do I take care of everyone else? Which is, that's how I was raised. I was raised to be the kind of person who, because I was kind of parentified by my parents being an only child. So my whole thing was, I've got to take care of everyone else. And that was the, the very thinking that led me into a situation where I wasn't getting the discomfort that, that I was experiencing checked out early enough for it to not be at stage four 
where it was when I was diagnosed. And it's only in the years that I've been able to process the situation have I come to that realization. So there I am in the moment getting that, new, that news and I'm in that problem-solving mode and I'm surrendering to what the experts are telling me I need to do. I need to have CT scans. I need to have MRIs. I need to have PET scans. Uh, there's probably going to be a surgery involved. They're going to open me up and do an exploratory. And if they see something wrong, they're just going to pull it out. I mean, it's completely, uh, well, clinical, right? They're not really looking at it as, hey, this is a human being who's having a quality of life. They're looking at it as this is a problem that needs to be solved and we will do everything possible to solve that problem. And then whatever comes after the problem has been resolved, well, that's his problem. So I'm inculcated into this, uh, this medical system, this pathway where I end up spending the next three and a half years. And I have all the time in the world to just be with myself and think about how did I get to this place? What contracts did I make with myself? What demons did I suppress to be in the position that, I'm, that I am now, where I find myself looking at this complete stranger who's telling me that I have a 27% chance of surviving the next five years because of this diagnosis. So... Um, can we pause the, here? Sure. I just want to reflect one one thing I'm hearing is that you're on this trajectory early in life of overwork, self-neglect, boundarylessness, people pleasing, and you hit a crisis point. Mm -hmm. Some of the worst news a person can ever receive. It stops everything. But at the beginning of this crisis, your, your beginning stage of that crisis looks like you responding to this crisis the same way you'd been responding to everything that led to it and the same way that you got yourself into this situation by self-neglect, by worrying about other people and being kind of disembodied. That was your initial way of greeting the crisis. And at the same time, that was what the crisis was trying to alert you to as not working. And I'm imagining that as your story progresses, we're, we're going to see some transformation in that pattern because it sounds like you came out the other side completely differently. So I just wanted to reflect that. Does that feel accurate to you? 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I came to realize uh, over the course of time, when I really reflect back and I look back on my infancy, where that comes from. Because one thing I, I didn't mention, because I was kind of saving it for later, which is fine, is that when I, I was born premature. And uh, so I didn't have any human contact for the first month of my life because I had to be in incubation chamber, right? And uh, in, in, you know, <laughs> if it's 1980 and your parents are just kind of, they're doing their own thing. And the, a lot of the, the mindset, I think, around birth, super clinical, super medical, very removed. So I didn't have any human contact. I didn't have any human touch. I didn't have a human voice for that, that seminal period of, of my infancy, the very, very beginning. And so because of that, I think I had this deep existential longing for contact. But at some point in, uh, within the first five years of my life, when my mirror neurons were, were forming, I developed this connection between, in order for me to get contact, I have to give. 
I have to, I don't have an intrinsic value in and of myself just by being a human being drawing breath on this planet. I have to earn contact. I have to earn love. I have to give of myself in order to receive. And that just became the, the emotional source code, the pattern that was baked into me for the rest of my life because it defines how I showed up in my relationships, how I showed up at work. In every single regard, I was overgiving and trying to demonstrate value to other people so that they would stick around. So that was absolutely my, um, where I was in my initial reaction to the diagnosis. And uh, it didn't really dawn on me that connection until I was getting out of chemo because I had a lot of time in chemo to do that work. Wow. Just yeah. seeing that that image of the of the preemie baby in the in the NICU. And I am not a medical professional and I don't know the reasons that that that's how babies are handled. I understand that there's, you know, trying to protect them from germs, but at the same time, it's such an unfathomable trauma to be a, a helpless newborn that just needs to be in its mother's arms more than anything and to be deprived of that touch. And it's totally understandable how you could develop, for lack of a better word, like a complex from that. Very much. Yeah. And then I think adding on top of that, just growing up in a family where um, this introverted only child who is precocious, has a high intellect, and it's very difficult for him to relate to the people around him, and especially to his parents, because they're kind of disengaged. They're workaholics. They have their own traumas, and they weren't hugely interested in being parents. I was very well provided for in the material sense, but in the emotional sense and the psychological sense, not so much. So there's this deep-seated feeling of abandonment that's kind of swirling around there too, while I'm also having zero continuity because we're moving all the time. So there's no sense of stability in terms of my greater environment. My immediate environment, yeah, it's there, there, but the house is always different. The place that we're living is always different. I'm constantly being bombarded with the new and having to adapt to the new. Um, and so the way to do that, the way that you, at least in my um, child brain at the time, the way that you do that is you have to demonstrate to these aliens who speak a different language and have different customs from you is that you have something valuable to give them, right? So if you give them something valuable, they're not going to exclude you from this tribe that you are temporarily going to be a part of for a year or two. So it's that, it's also, yeah, it's the lack of continuity as well that I think played into that dynamic. Um, and there was nothing inside me that said, hang on, wait a second, maybe this isn't normal. Maybe this isn't really how things are supposed to go. Or maybe I need to spend some time looking at that so that I'm understanding how it's influencing my response to things that are going on in the present. Um, so I get this diagnosis. Was a, mm -hmm. It was a survival strategy. You oh, talked yeah, about trying so hard to please the tribe, but being tribeless. And then you followed up and, and explained that. That uh, And I, I think that's part of the reason I relate to you as well. Um, because I, I get that never, never really belonging anywhere, kind of being between worlds and, and for you that constantly changing environment. Yeah. It's understandable that you felt like you needed to do whatever you could to try to get people to see you as one of them, even though ironically, the gift that you're discovering in midlife is that being different is what makes you so valuable. Um, 
Anyway, so you, so you get this diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. And you're playing out those old patterns at first. What happens next? Yeah. So what happens next is I lean into the expertise of my oncologists and an entire army of medical professionals who were then telling me, okay, this is what we are going to have to do to save your life. Probably won't work, but this is what we're going to have to do. So it's a series of scans. It's radiation therapy for five months. It's about three and a half years of chemotherapy. Uh, and it's basically living inside of an MRI machine every three weeks for, you know, for that duration of time. Um, immediately after the diagnosis, so it was, um, it was the fall of that year. Um, work was slowing down. So I was in a position where even if I uh, wanted to fall back in my previous patterns and overworking and I couldn't, uh, so I had nothing in the world to do but really focus on this health crisis and take care of myself. So um, a number of, of exploratory uh, surgeries were scheduled. And um, what ended up happening was, uh, and again, I apologize to your audience if this is too graphic, but it's the truth. Um, right after... Uh, Hanukkah week had just ended, uh, just celebrated. Um, I, I'm Jewish, but my partner at the time uh, was not. So we did this sort of dual holiday thing where I have my Hanukkah celebration and then uh, she has a Christmas celebration. So her mother had come into town and we were planning on doing a, a dinner, like a family dinner at, at our place. And I'm in tremendous pain. Uh, I'm exhausted just from all of the, the, the medical nonsense that's going on with me. And so I had decided to go off and take a nap. And then I was going to freshen up and psych myself up to be sociable for uh, her, uh, her family who were coming in. And so I go to the restroom to take care of myself and freshen up and to use it. And I immediately have a hemorrhage and blood is just pouring out of me. And uh, at first I'm it's just completely over the top, absurd and ridiculous, right? I just had a biopsy, so my thought was, okay, maybe one of my wounds opened up, something's going on. I'll see, put some pressure on it, see if I can stop the bleeding. Sure, it'll be fine. Uh, that goes on for 10 minutes. I'm still bleeding. Obviously, not fine. And it took everything in my power to convince myself that I was in trouble and that I needed help and that I needed to cry out for my partner and her mother to come and see to me, take care of me. Because again, that old pattern, Corey doesn't want to be a burden. Corey takes care of other people. No one takes care of him. Um, so I'm sat there on the toilet, bleeding out for about 15 minutes, and I am losing consciousness. And I'm getting the tunnel vision. Everything's turning red. And I know that I am going to pass out and I might not wake up. So by the time I finally cry out and say that, hey, I need some help. I need you to call an ambulance. I'm having an issue here. Uh, I was collapsing on the bathroom floor in a pool of my own blood. Uh, so I go in and out of, um, and you know, this is, this is Christmas Eve dinner, by the way, <laughs> when this is happening. And so I go in and out of consciousness and uh, the EMTs, they rock up. Uh, her mother was a nurse practitioner, I should say. So she was able to kind of get me up and get me into our living room and run a series of procedures to make sure that I'm not completely gone. So she does manage to wake me up. EMTs are rocking up. And even then, even in that state, I'm apologizing to them. I'm so sorry. I, you know, I'm so sorry I ruined Christmas dinner. I don't know what happened, all the rest of it. And then I'm saying, 
okay, if I go to hospital, just someone please stay with the dogs. I have these two dogs that I love dearly. Um, just stay with the dogs, take care of them. I'll be fine. So I end up going into hospital and it takes four blood transfusions to stabilize me. That's how much blood I lost. So uh, long story short, I'm in hospital for about two months at this point. And that is when they decide, okay, look, we have to accelerate your treatment timetable. Uh, we have to get you, we have got, we've got to start you on the chemo. We've got to maybe do these surgeries and start pulling things out of you if there are problems that can't be solved any other way. And we have to start you on the radiation. Um, and so while I'm in there, I have all the time in the world in hospital to just think about what just happened to me. I'm in a tremendous amount of pain. Basic bodily functions are excruciating. And um, I didn't want to see anyone for the longest time because I felt at this point, I, was f I, I felt some embarrassment about what happened over the dinner and bleeding out. And I was uh, in a state of mind where I was really blaming myself for that situation because I, I like to have control over myself and I don't want to ever ruin the party for anyone else. And here I'd done it in a very dramatic way. Um, and uh, so I'm in hospital and um, I don't know exactly when the moment was that I came to this realization, but I said, okay, wait a minute you need to take stock of what just happened to you. And maybe that shouldn't include anyone else right now. You got doctors and nurses coming in and checking on you at all hours of the day and night. They're coming at three o'clock in the morning to take your blood pressure. You're on all these medications. Maybe you just need to sit by yourself for a week and think and reflect and gain a sense of how you arrived in the situation and not have to take care of anyone else, not have to take care of anyone else's feelings or needs or anxieties or fears, none of it. We're all adults here. They can take care of themselves. It's about time you took care of yourself for once. It was almost like getting this cosmic download that I, that I came to this realization. Um, what ended up happening was, and I mean, I can, I can go on ad nauseum about the actual procedures. I mean, getting my first scans going down uh, to get prepped for radiation, what that was like for the first time. But the gist of it is that by the time I was released from this hospital situation, um, my girlfriend left. She said, I don't want to be in a relationship with you. I can't be around you while you're going through this whole cancer situation. So she blows up the living situation, blows up life. Actually turns out to be the best thing that could have happened because at that point, it was me and my dogs and this cancer situation, and I had to go through it on my own, which means that I had to take care of me for the first time in my life in a situation of crisis. And I'm not, by, by taking care of me, I'm not saying that uh, uh, I've ever been dependent on anyone or anything like that. Uh, in terms of of, of uh, the basic functionality of being an adult human being, I mean taking care of me at the spiritual level, taking care of my health, caring about myself, valuing myself, having a boundary between myself and the world and having boundaries with myself so that I can persevere and survive the situation that I was in. That was when things really started to to, to shift and change. 
So they, um, they run me through radiation for a number of months. And those radiation treatments are exhausting. Uh, it's very painful after a while because your skin sloughs off. It burns. You're walking around with raw nerves, basically. And for me, it was all in the pelvis. So you can imagine what that did to those parts of my body. It was very painful. Um, and then I had, still have it, had a chemotherapy uh, port installed in my chest that runs a catheter up through my neck and down directly into my heart. And they would hook a chemo pump up to me and I would wear that pump attached to my body for six days, had to sleep with it, had to shower with it, everything. And that was delivering all the chemo into my system. I couldn't be around my friend's kids because I was a walking biohazard to them with the chemotherapy drugs in me. So I was isolated, really. It was just me and the dogs and time and my own demons. And it was like that for about three years. Wow. What yeah. a way to live. It sounds like hell. It was. But uh, I remembered what uh, Winston Churchill said about hell. If you're going through hell, keep going. And that's what I did. I just kept going. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm not going back. So, Because where I was before, hell kind of sucked too. So I'll at least keep going and maybe I'll end up in purgatory, but I'm not going to stay here and I'm not going back. Wow. Yeah. Was, was there so, ever a moment mm. that you wanted to give up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially when I when I was in um, when I was uh, inpatient in hospital after having that bleed out, uh, I was full on suicidal for uh, a couple of weeks. It was it was it was awful. I mean, and I was uh, I was just determined to not survive this experience. I mean, I was in such a state of self annihilation, and a lot of that came from a feeling of uh, feeling like I'd been defeated in life, um, but also a lot of it just came from this place of it's not going to get any better. I should just give up now. I should just quit. That's, that's, that's really what it was. What turned it around was a, a conversation I ended up having with the hospital chaplain, which was interesting because um, it was during this time that I didn't want to talk to anyone while I was in hospital. And I just, I was uh, silencing all my calls. I was rejecting calls. I just, I was freaking people out really, because it, it was this radical overcorrection going from being this person who was always available and always taking care of other people emotionally to suddenly not being available, right? And I'm just in hospital. I just had this bleed out. So people did not know what was going on with me. Uh, and um, my partner, before she left, um, what she'd done was I'd freaked her out because I wasn't taking her calls. And so what she ends up doing is she's calling the hospital and she's saying, is there a rabbi who's on staff? Like someone can go and talk to him because... He needs somebody to talk to. I feel he needs to talk to someone, even if he's telling me, no, I just need to be alone right now. And so she sends up this guy um, who's like, uh, I didn't know who he was at first because he, he, he rocks up looking a bit like John Lennon. And he's got the wireframe glasses and he's got a cardigan on and kind of long shaggy hair and a nice beard. Andrew's his name. Really nice bloke. And um, he just we just have a conversation and we're not, we're not talking in specific terms about spirituality. He's asking me, how are you? How are you feeling? How are you doing? Tell me about who you are. Tell me about your life, right? He expressed curiosity about me. He wasn't trying to tell me my own experience. He wasn't trying to dictate to me how I should or should not be dealing with my situation like everyone else in my life at that time was. He was just asking me questions. 
And we end up having a spiritual conversation for about an hour and a half, two hours in very non-spiritual terms. And we just start describing images to each other. And he, he tells me about a story that he read about a monk who sat on the edge of a cliff watching a storm come in. And everyone is telling him, you've got you to come inside quick. The storm is going to blow you away or you're going to get struck by lightning. It's a very dangerous place to be. You shouldn't be here in this situation. And the monk says, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to watch the storm come in and I'm going to allow it to roll over me and I'm going to experience it. I want to feel the rain on my skin. I want to feel the wind blowing me around and buffeting me. I want to watch the effect that this storm is having on the environment just because I want to have the experience. Even if I don't survive it, I want to know what it's like being in the middle of this hurricane that's about to hit the island. And something in that really penetrated me deep inside. And it made me say, okay, here I am in a horrifying situation. I kind of want to know what it's like. And I kind of want to know if I can make it. Do I have what it takes inside me to get through this experience? And if I survive the experience, who am I going to be when the storm blows over? And that was the conversation that convinced me to back away from the suicidality that I'd been in for a week and actually go to that first radiation appointment just to see if I could make it through the first 15 minutes. And so that's what I told myself. That's what I told myself for three years. I said, okay, can you make it through 15 minutes? Okay, great. Do you think you could do something in the next 15 minutes that will be beneficial? And the next 15 minutes, and will that be beneficial? And the whole experience was just intervals of what I could do in 15 minutes. And I found that I was made of sterner stuff than I gave myself credit for. And that's what really kept me going. That's what kept me away from suicidality and self-annihilation and self-erasure, which I would later on come to find. If you were to come to me as a client and tell me you were feeling grumpy, irritable, lethargic, stressed out, or unfocused, I'd want to do a thorough assessment of your lifestyle. And one of the first elements we'd look at is the quality and quantity of your sleep. You need at least a good seven hours of refreshing sleep every night in order to be your best self. There are many things that can get in the way of that. A demanding job, a new baby, or just plain bad habits, for example. But if you're having difficulty falling or staying asleep for the simple reason that you're too hot, you're too cold, or you and your partner don't agree on the temperature, look no further. I have just the thing for you. And since this is not therapy, but a podcast, I can actually sell you stuff. So I'm going to genuinely recommend that you check out the Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep. It's the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. The cover can adjust the temperature on each side of the bed individually for you and your partner based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. Personally, I have mine set to run on autopilot so that my bed is warm when I get in, cool in the middle of the night, and warm again when it's time to wake up. I sleep very soundly this way. Improving your sleep is one of the best investments you can possibly make in your overall well-being, the quality of your work, and the lives of the people you touch. So go to 8sleep.com to check out the pod and use the code SOMETHERAPIST at checkout for up to $200 off your purchase. Even if they're already running another sale, this code will get you an additional $50 off. 
And to my listeners around the world, Eight Sleep currently ships not only within the USA, but also to Canada, the United Kingdom, select countries in the European Union, and Australia. All right, now back to the show. Wow. Yeah. I've I've heard people suffer through experiences like that before of just, can you get through the next breath or the next minute? And you had to do that with being basically physically tortured by your own body and also physically tortured by the treatments that were ultimately supposed to relieve you of the physical torture within your body. And so you had to do that in 15 minute increments for years. Mm -hmm. I, I love that perspective shift from that beautiful conversation that you had just to kind of the surrender and this wide open curiosity of like, this is what life is right now. And I get to be here for it. I get to be here for the suffering. I get to be here for the storm. And that curiosity of, can I make it through? Who could I become through this? I want to know that person. I want to have this experience, even if it's ripping me apart. Right. So this exactly. is kind of the the like heart of your journey, really the suffering through it. Right. And also I, I would add to that, um, learning to trust my body again. Because when you're in that situation, when you're dealing with something like cancer and you know that you've got this mass that's been growing inside of you, and it's at that point, it's so complex and so deeply rooted that it has its own nervous system and its own blood system, too. You know, it's like you're going a second self. There's a a feeling of betrayal that I remember having. I felt betrayed by my own body to a certain degree. And so um, learning to trust my own body again, learning to actually be embodied, I think maybe for the first time in my life in a significant way, I think that was also part of it too. And it's like, you you couldn't have chosen a worse moment. I mean, (laughs) of all moments to be in your body, that just sounds like the most miserable type of moment there could be. That This is a time that even someone with a lifelong embodiment practice would be jumping out of their skin to dissociate or numb the pain. But here you'd had a whole life until this point, and this is the moment of of pain and suffering that you chose to meet yourself and fully embody yourself. Exactly right. Yeah. And I didn't need to know that about myself before doing it. I, I just did it. I just said, okay, this is the situation I'm in. I want to experience it to the fullest. If I don't make it out of it, at least I'll make it out of it knowing that I experienced 100% of it and 100% of me. So let's go. And I won't say that that made it any easier because it was excruciating. Um, But definitely getting to a place where certainly when my body was responding well to the treatments and uh, the tumor was uh, was shrinking. I mean, that thing was about the size of a, of a can of Coke. It was huge. Um, and just knowing that that was shrinking, it was exiting my body and the pain was going away. And then just seeing how much stronger I became once I was off the chemo. That's when I really said, okay, I can trust my body and my body's actually amazing and I can uh, live in it full time. I don't have to dissociate no matter what else is going on in my life. I can stay right here, present with myself in my body the full, the, you know, all the time. And, th- and that's where I am now, but it's taken me a long time to get there. Um, now, the, the reason that I developed the cancer in the first place, I have no idea. It doesn't, the, the type of cancer I had, it doesn't run in my family. Um, it, I, uh, my, uh, 
paternal grandmother had passed away from breast cancer, they thought, okay, maybe that was related. But I did a number of genetic tests that that uh, determined that it wasn't uh, it wasn't hereditary. I don't think it was dietary because I'd always eaten a clean, uh, mostly raw organic diet. Uh, I wasn't sedentary. I exercised reasonably well, reasonably active. Um, don't smoke. Drink moderately, but certainly not to excess. Um, so what what was it? Why why develop this mass? Um, and I think really what it was, maybe there's a psychosomatic component because I was if I was this re- this self repressed person for so long, and especially in the first 18 years of my life, and I wasn't addressing that, I wasn't addressing the core underlying, uh, underlying trauma that led to that, how else would my body respond to that allostatic load, that nervous system injury? That's what I've come to understand now. So that's only deepened my trust of my body, I think, uh, in the present. Wow. And it's like, yeah. how how else could your inner self, your, your body, your soul, however you conceptualize it, how else could it get your attention? Right. Yeah. And it sounds like you joined with the chemotherapy and radiation, like the, the, as, as toxic as those chemicals and processes are that you realize that those were the things that were going to fight the thing that was killing you. And so you just worked with the medicine to re-inhabit your body and reclaim it and get the cancer out. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, it got to the point, um, funnily enough, even with the radiation treatments, where I began to look forward to them. I mean, I was going five days a week for months. And I knew all of the technicians uh, in the radiation uh, center in the hospital, at the very sub-basements of Providence, I got to know them very well. I got to know their names, what kind of books they liked, their favorite bands, everything. It got to the point where I ended up being their favorite patient. And um, I just treated it as an opportunity to go see my friends. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah, I'm half of my, my skin on my lower half is gone. I'm a raw nerve all the time. I'm a mess, but I'm still showering. I'm putting on my best clothes. I look good when I go in there. I'm presenting myself well, and I'm not treating people badly because of my experience. And I'm looking forward to seeing them and connecting with them and building those relationships. That was also a huge part of it too. A lot of it was mindset, you know, mind over matter, as they say, how do I choose to show up in this crisis? How do I choose to show up in this situation where, yeah, it's it's unjust. I've had bad things happen. My body is betraying me and is trying to kill me. Uh, my girlfriend's left me in, in the middle of fighting for my life and I'm dealing with all this abandonment and all the rest of it. Okay, that sucks. That's awful. And I can feel that, but I can also at the same time feel gratitude for the people who are trying to save my life. And I can also at the same time treat them like human beings and develop relationships with them and get to know them and get to a place where I'm looking forward to seeing them every time I'm in hospital, even though I know I'm going to go through something very painful every single time. So a lot of it was what kind of narrative am I telling myself about my own experience? It was mindset. It was taking control of what you could take control of and recognizing those choices. It was maintaining that human element in your life, um, which is, by the way, the quality of our relationships is the number one predictor of longevity above diet, exercise, and smoking and all of the rest. So that totally makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, you, you embracing it, it reminds me of a conversation I was having with someone recently who was asking, how, how do I brace myself for the possibility of putting myself out there and people hating my work or criticizing it? I don't think I can handle that. And I said, well, you look forward to it as part of the process. It's the difference between walking down the street and someone punching you Mm-hmm. And stepping into a boxing ring to practice your skills. You know, you you embrace that if you're on your path, however controversial it might be, that these are literally the, well, no, excuse me. These are figuratively the punches <laughs> that you're going to have to be rolling with. And you can learn to anticipate them and you can learn to embrace and work with them so that you get that criticism. And it's like, thank you. This is my opportunity to strengthen my resolve so that I know how to filter criticism, what's useful to me that I can learn from, what's BS that I can dismiss, that I can develop a more robust sense of self toward. And I was just reminded of that conversation, hearing how you rolled with these punches and you embraced the process, almost as if you had chosen it. Yeah, in in a weird way. I I think maybe on an unconscious level, I did choose it. Um, that's something I've been reflecting uh, on quite a bit lately. But your um, your your punches and martial arts analogy is is apropos. I mean, if if you're anyone who's gone to a boxing class, will tell you, as I've done, uh, the first thing they they teach you is how to take a punch, because if you're flinching and if you're afraid of your opponent's uh, shots, you're not going to make it very far as a boxer. Um, so it's very true. I, I think you you have to you have to cultivate a situational awareness and kind of a, a warrior ethos. You know, and for me, that's a very bushido mindset. Now, where uh, if I'm in any kind of situation, mentally, I tell myself I'm already dead. So anything that can happen isn't going to penetrate me. It's not going to really affect me because I'm going in prepared for the worst thing that can happen. I've already accepted it. I've already embraced it. Um, I, so I really love that. acting in defiance of and the things that you're started, afraid of. I know we're only mm-hmm. halfway through your story, but I, I just have to That's comment fine. how much yeah. I, I love that. You know, before we started recording, I had kind of made an empathic guess that after surviving something with such a low survival rate halfway through life, that you would feel like anything else was bonus time. And yeah. I've, I haven't been through what you've been through, obviously, but I have had some things happen to me that were truly horrifying where I was like, this is hell. This is hell right now. I'm living in hell. And, you know, after you make it through something like that, whatever your own personal hell might be, there's a sense of the worst thing that could happen to me has already happened to me. How could I live in fear? Like I've the fear, what I have to fear is in the past. So That's right. now I'm free. Nothing that bad could ever happen to me again. And I survived that. Yeah. All right. So yeah, here you are exactly right. <laughs> going through hell, embracing the process, coming back into your body. Let's pick up from there. Sure. Yeah. So um, throughout that whole process, and like I said, I, I was at this point, I'm living life in 15 minute increments, right? And it's me and it's my experience of my body and everything that's, uh, that is, is happening through the course of the treatment, the pain and also the reduction of pain over time, which I'm also noticing. Um, but also really from all the drugs that I was on, I had to, I had to live a very, very different uh, lifestyle than I was used to. And so I had to be very intentional about everything I was doing, 
everything I was exposing myself to. I had no immune system because the chemo completely suppressed it. So um, going to the shops and, and getting groceries, things like that, I had to approach that a certain way. I had to, there had to be a certain degree of preparation uh, for me to execute something like that. Uh, to get something out of, uh, out of my freezer, I had to put on gloves because the leucovorin I was on made me really sensitive to cold. So I had to think about how much frozen food I wanted to have around, if any at all. And I had to plan in advance for when I wanted to have something cold. I couldn't uh, just go in and grab it like I could before without feeling like my hand was being stabbed with ice picks. So I had to slow everything down and I had to be more methodical in my approach to even the most basic things. And there were also, and there's, there certainly was still the feeling of, well, I do have responsibilities. I mean, I still got to pay my bills and I have my dogs to take care of because at that point it's just me and the dogs. So walking them, even if I could only make it a block, that was something that I would make sure that I would always do. I never, I never allowed myself to be in a situation where I said, okay, because of everything that I'm going through, my life can completely fall apart. No, I maintained immaculate order, a clean home. I took care of myself extremely well. I just had to do things very slowly. Um, and I think that that gave me a lot of time to think about what was actually important to me, um, to reprioritize a bit. Uh, and it also gave me more time to be alone with my own thoughts and I could hear myself again. So I started having these long conversations with myself. I would record them sometimes on my phone, just on audio. And I started keeping uh, a journal of everything I was experiencing um, that I eventually uh, would turn into a, a memoir, which I'm in the process of writing. I was releasing episodes of it online for a while until life got busy again. I have every intention of finishing it. But that gave me a way of stepping out of my situation from time to time and looking at it more objectively, writing about my experience from the third person as if I'm just writing about another person going through this. When you change that point of view, uh, and you become as objective as possible about your own experience, then you can start noticing things that you can't see when you're purely in the subjective and attached to all of the emotions that you are having in that moment about your experience. So I sort of developed a way to move seamlessly between subjectivity and objectivity. And that really helped me understand what was going on around me what my values were, what my maxims were, and how I wanted to live right down to that, um, that functional level of making food, walking the dogs, getting something from the fridge, whatever it was. Everything just had to slow down. And uh, that, was, that was a massive gift. Sounds like a lot of mindfulness and that, that perspective shift where your relationship with time changes and right. you're more present and deliberate in each moment, it almost gives you more time because our sense of time is so subjective. And when we're rushing, when we're on autopilot, lots of time can pass and we go, where did the time go? We feel like we're not really living. But here, on the one hand, what you were able to do was so greatly diminished. And on the other hand, it was like you were truly living for the first time. Right. Yeah, exactly right. It, it was almost, in a sense, making up for all the living that I had deferred while I was being busy, busy being busy, uh, turning busyness into a virtue, which I think 
is certainly the case in in certainly not all Western countries, but definitely in in the states. There's a very unhealthy relationship to productivity. Uh, and I think a lot of people just they they jump into the rat race and they think that uh, you know uh, eventually I'm going to win the rat race. Yeah, even if you win the race, you're still a rat. You know, and uh, <laughs> I, I became very, very deeply aware of that. I just said, okay, look, I didn't even know if I want to stay in this industry, right? Because it's just so profoundly toxic, um, just from the standpoint of its very structure and its and its uh, its ethos. And uh, I just said to myself, no, if if I continue doing this kind of work, even that has to change. I can't go back and do it the way that Hollywood would have it done or the way the the Portland film scene does things because so many people, there's great people working in the industry, but there is this mindset of I have to be busy and I have to prove to other people that I'm busy. And if I'm not busy, then I don't count and I lose relevance. I think that's complete nonsense. Um, it's a cult mindset. And I said, I'm going to do everything on my own terms going forward. And if that means I lose opportunities, well, then so be it. Because at least I'm putting my health uh, front and center where it should have been this whole time. Maybe if it had been, I, I would have made different choices. You know, so it, you talk when about, you... Hmm. Well, and you talk about being tribeless, being... Well, the term, one term I would use for myself is like a cultural orphan um, mm -hmm. or, I mean, you're literally an immigrant, but also figuratively the the journey of the immigrant moving through different cultures, never particularly belonging to any, anyone. I think that those of us who are designed that way, who are more, you know, the eccentric individualists that don't fit into any tribe, part of our gifts it, uh, include the ability to have a more uh, objective perspective toward things that people take for granted and act out in a culture. And one of those is our relationships with time, productivity, busyness, and all this kind of stuff. So part of your living inauthentically, being influenced by the tribes that you were passing through, was absorbing that Western and, and very American attitude about time and productivity. And this kind of journey back to yourself that you got out of passing through hell brought you back to yourself and what what is Corey's sense of time what does Corey care about producing and and how right. does he want to go about producing that yeah exactly right and um that that's definitely something in in recent months uh i've had the opportunity to really build that for myself because when i was when i was sick and i was dealing with the cancer that was me in a situation where um i had to determine what the coordinates were the entire uh, map had shifted. And so I got to redefine the coordinates for myself and how I wanted to navigate and maneuver my life on the basis of those new coordinates. So now that I had that established, I'm able to put it into practice and I'm able to see, okay, what actually works in this culture that I, I can't change the culture. I can't really influence it, but I can change how I move in it. I can change my response to it and I can choose the degree to which I engage with it. Um, and so now I have no problem if I'm uh, on, a, uh, on a creative job, I always build in extra time for myself. And I always tell people up front, look, I am slow, I do slow art, I'm methodical, I take my time, and if you guys don't work that way, if you want it done now, 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 that's fine. Maybe I'm not the right fit. 
I would never have said that five, six years ago. I would have tried to be everything to everyone because, again, the ethos of overworking and a certain sense of scarcity around uh, how I was approaching my work was leading to this toxic dynamic of never saying no to anything and then ending up in situations that made me sick or I, where I wasn't doing work that I could feel proud of. Now, I want to do work that I feel proud of. And the best way I do that is to work at a slower pace and to be methodical and to be meticulous and to let things develop in a more organic way over time. That makes me pretty incompatible for the industry. And I'm okay with that because I can build something that works for me in my own terms. It's only too bad I had to go through hell to come to that realization. Um, but it's, it's, it's working out. It's, it's uh, I think for the first time, certainly over this last year, year and a half, I've actually been able to build that uh, for myself in a way that I would not have told myself that it would be possible for me to accomplish that six, seven years ago. Now it's second nature because it's become axiomatic to me that that is who I am and that's how I work. And not everything is going to be a good fit for me. And that's okay. I will be more than fine. There's plenty of abundance out there if you're authentic. That's what I'm finding. You have to be able to say no to so many temptations, people, projects, expectations, in order to really dedicate yourself to the things that are fully a yes for you. Right. Right. Yeah, and I'm 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 interested I'm interested in the, in what's true in the world. I'm interested in I mean, I think part of the reason one becomes an artist is to tap into that universal human truth, that universal human experience. You can't do that if you're operating from a place of scarcity. And if you're trying to take on everything that you, to such a degree that you lose a sense of who you are and your unique perspective on the world, you're not going to do that very effectively because you're just going to replicate what is trendy. You're going to replicate what other people want you to produce. I'm not interested in that. All right. So where are we in your cancer story? So I'd say at this point, uh, it's just that long a uh, war of attrition, I call it. I mean, it's it's like the trenches of World War One. You've got your routine every single day. It's miserable. It's wet. It's muddy. It's disgusting. There's that constant looming threat of death, um, and you go through that routine every single day, grinding and grinding. Sometimes you gain ten feet worth of ground, then the next day you get pushed back fifty feet, and you do it again and again and again with no end in sight. But there are moments of sublime beauty. There's a bird that flies through the barbed wire. There's a, a perfect sunrise or sunset. Um, you know, someone that you're with says something hilarious. You play a great game of cards. I mean, it really is like that. There's always those moments of just absolute majesty in the midst of misery. Um, and so that's where I was. I was just living day to day, living really 15 minutes by 15 minutes, but also building in opportunities to... Uh, to feel and experience my body or a connection with another human being, laugh at my dogs, uh, make something beautiful, make some great art, enjoy something, read a great book, listen to some great music, play a perfect game of chess, whatever it was. It was just those micro moments of um, really soaking in 
everything I possibly could because for all I knew, it, I might not be able to do any of those things in a year or two. So everything became magnified. It was like um, going from black and white to technicolor. You know, that moment in The Wizard of Oz where she, you know, she steps out of the house and she steps out of the sepia tone of 1939. It's just brilliant, beautiful technicolor. It was like that in a, in a, in a strange way. Um, everything took on a much deeper meaning and everything there was lush uh, and to be experienced to the fullest. And so I just did that for three years um, while regaining a sense of trust in my body and while my scans were giving me the empirical evidence that, hey, I'm actually, I'm winning, I'm beating this thing. Um, I'm destroying this tumor, I'm slaying it. You know, is how I looked at it. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge heavy metal fan, so I was always listening to a lot of my favorite music just to just to pump me up and just keep me energized. And I turned it into, in my own mind, this epic battle between not even good and evil, but between the authentic and the inauthentic. And I, I wanted to defeat the inauthentic parts of myself, and that's how I formulated it. So um, that's really what it was, you know, for three years. And I, uh, it was the first time I began to actually cultivate some real boundaries for myself because I didn't allow anything into my space or my energetic field that I knew wasn't good for me. And I was really putting myself front and center of my experience for the first time. And then um, one day in 2020, I had a, a CT scan and they said, we have seen no evidence of inflammation or illness anywhere in your body or at the original cancer site for six months. Congratulations. So we're going to officially say that you're in full remission. And in a few months, we'll come back and we'll see about maybe taking the port out of your chest. And that, that's a huge milestone because what that means is they're not saying we're going to have to put this guy back on chemo. They're saying he's probably good for a few years. If it comes back, it's later in life. And by that point, the technology is much better. So his chance of survival is even higher than it was when he was diagnosed in 2018. So uh, yeah, that's, that's really where things are currently. What was it like for you to hear that news? Surreal. I, uh, it's not that I never thought the day would come. It's just uh, when it did, uh, there wasn't any fanfare. It was just like, oh, that's great. Cool. I'm going to go get a nice lunch and then carry on with my day. Like I just, I become so inured to the medical environment that it was, um, it was very subdued. Um, and by that point, I was already living as if I didn't have cancer anymore. I, in, in terms of my daily habits, the way that I would show up, the way that I would talk about it to people, I wouldn't say my cancer, I would say the cancer, or I don't have cancer, it's gone. My, my scans have been clean for months. So it was just living as if that was reality until it was confirmed by my oncologist that I think made all the difference. So by the time I actually got the news, like, yeah, I knew that. You're not telling me anything I don't already know. I've known for months that I don't have cancer and it's not coming back. You know, so that just made the the news kind of mundane in a in a weird way that I didn't expect. Surreal, but mundane. And it seems like by that point, there's this 
freedom because you'd already surrendered to the possibility that you might die. You'd already surrendered to suffering through all the pain of your illness and your treatment. Um, you'd already surrendered to how much that this had limited your lifestyle and your options and to your worst, one of your worst fears was of abandonment. You say that you'd, you'd spent so much of your life trying desperately to avoid abandonment and then it happened in your darkest moment of, of need, your girlfriend walked away. So you, you'd already made it through all of those things and learned to find some grace and equanimity in the process. So it's like, by the time you're, you're dismissed, you're free. You're like, it's, it would seem like you're free to do anything at that point. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because, um, like you say, what what I was more afraid of than death was abandonment. And then over the course of time, uh, as I recognized how many of those things I had experienced and survived, then what I realized is what I'm more afraid of than death is nihilism. <laughs> you know, that was much more frightening to me than than um, abandonment. Because I think when you're in that state of nihilism, you're abandoning yourself, and that is a terminal condition. So that is that's that's how I'm living now. Is is everything that I do? The great enemy is nihilism. The great enemy within myself is nihilism, uh, even more so than than death. Uh, so there was a a, a transition, uh, in a sense, from what I used to be afraid of, uh, from a standpoint of uh, of helplessness, victimization, right? Because I think if you if you're afraid of being uh, abandoned, as I was you are leaning into a victim mindset. And so to move from that mindset to saying, no, the big fear is nihilism, that is very different because then you're taking on this ownership of that fear and you're giving yourself the opportunity to actively do something about it. You cannot help whether or not you're going to be abandoned. Some people, some people are just jerks and they're just going to walk away from you. And some people, you know, they have their own stuff that they're dealing with and it might not have anything to do with you. Fine. Um, but do you abandon yourself to nihilism? That's a choice. That is something that you can actually actively do something about because it originates right here. You have to be your own point of origin. Um, I think that would be the, the big download, uh, from, from that aspect of things. And what was the process like of finding vitality again? Interesting question. Um, I, for most of my life, uh, I've, I've kind of thought of myself as the anvil that can break all hammers. So when it comes to being in an uncomfortable physical situation, being on set for 15 hours a day, I could just push, push and push. But yeah, it, going through cancer treatment, it weakened me. Uh, I lost a ton of muscle mass. I lost about 90 pounds uh, on an already very slender frame. So um, for me, I looked at it as the house collapsed and I just have to rebuild the house. And I have the opportunity to just bulldoze the whole thing, but I've got a firm foundation and I can redesign that house any way I want. So it was a slow process of just being forgiving with myself and recognizing, yeah, I'm starting from a depleted state, but through nutrition, through exercise, through intermittent fasting, through meditation, through a lot of different lifestyle changes that I've made, I'm able to rebuild a house. I'm still in the process of doing it. I have to pace myself. I mean, I can't pull 15 hour long days on set. Um, I was just, I've been traveling for the last year shooting this documentary. And, um, you know, we were 
often in very grueling conditions because some of it we sh- I was working with the Green Berets at Fort Bragg and you know I wanted to keep up with those guys um, because I, I just said I don't want to show up here being the weak guy who just beat cancer showing up rocking out with uh, you know all these army guys and not being able to keep up so some of it was me saying what can I do to condition myself so that I am able to show up and uh, handle whatever comes my way. So a lot of it is mindset and most of it is preparation. So now I feel like I can take on those 15 hour days, but do I want to is the bigger question, right? Uh, what is the actual value of doing that if it isn't absolutely necessary? Um, so some of my vitality has uh, has arisen in the standpoint from the standpoint of how I want to approach everything that I do now, which is it's not always necessary to work at that level. Um, but I do feel stronger now than I, f- and I mean physically stronger than I felt uh, before the diagnosis. I'm rebuilding muscle mass. I'm in great shape. I'm active. Um, I'm down to one dog now, but she keeps me active. And uh, I'm just living in a way where, because I trust my body again, I'm seeing my body as a finely honed instrument that I get to sculpt and I get to mold it and I get to um, rebuild it in a way that works best for me. I don't have to do that on anyone else's timeline or to anyone else's specifications. So even the recovering of vitality, I'm pushing that through the lens of self-ownership. As a therapist, I've gotten up close and personal view at what people tend to struggle with day in and day out. Turns out, it's almost universal that we know we should be taking better care of ourselves in terms of the basic building blocks of well-being like diet and exercise. But as valuable as it is for our mental and physical health to change our lifestyle habits, it's also much easier said than done. People often set goals that are too lofty, only to feel even worse about themselves when their aspirations inevitably fail. That's why I recommend starting with positive changes that are as simple as possible. Enter my new favorite beverage line. Organifi makes it so easy to improve your nutrition and start feeling better right now with refreshing plant-based blends of superfoods and adaptogens that you can just mix with water. My personal favorite is their green juice. It contains moringa, ashwagandha, chlorella, spirulina, wheatgrass, beets, turmeric, mint, lemon, and coconut water. 100% organic with no added sugar, and it tastes great. My family loves Organifi Gold, which promotes relaxation and restful sleep, served mixed with warm almond milk before bed. Organifi also makes several other powerful blends, all organic and loaded with vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, anti-inflammatory herbs, and adaptogens. For less than $3 and 3 grams of sugar per serving, you can start giving yourselves the support they need to manage stress and feel good. Check out their product line at Organifi.com. That's spelled O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. And use promo code SOMETHERAPIST to get 20% off your entire order. Your whole body will thank you. This is really inspiring for me to hear. Um, I mentioned before we started recording, I'm going through my own sort of health crisis, nothing like what you endured, of course, but uh, you know, I, I was diagnosed a month or two ago with uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, POTS, which I have um, following COVID. It's sort of a manifestation of long haul COVID. Um, uh, 
Turns out it's something that a person can get from any viral infection. You can get it from getting the flu or Epstein-Barr. Um, but I've been knocked down. I've I've been deconditioned and I've had to um, take it really easy and implement all these lifestyle measures. And I have my moments of feeling so frustrated, so trapped in my body that's not capable of doing the things it was capable of doing a year ago. Um, and I'm in a really gradual process of rebuilding. And so I'm going to have to take some of what you're saying with me, right? Think about it. Like I've, you know, the house has been knocked down and I get to choose how to rebuild it, right? Everything I'm putting in my body because I have to eat really small meals now. And I find that consuming superfoods really helps me feel like even though I'm not able to put a lot of energy into cooking or eat like a big salad or anything like that, I'm eating nutritionally dense foods. I'm going to be following an exercise program that's really carefully designed to work with my condition and not uh, create overexertion problems. Um, so I'm, I'm going to have to take that with me. Um, now you talked about, uh, before Star Recording, you talked about a novel treatment that you um, have personally been through and you've co-authored a book uh, that's coming out this coming spring of 2023. Um, and that's been part of your healing process as well. So can you tell us about the SGB treatment? Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, this treatment, it's uh, it's really astonishing. And I had, I came across it completely by accident. Um, it's, you know, it's it's the summer of 2021 um, coming out of the, the whole cancer experience. And I'm still having issues with reactivity. Uh, I'm still dealing with situations where I would get triggered. I would have uh, very strong reactions to things that were innocuous. I couldn't, um, if I was in uh, an argument uh, with somebody, it could get to a point where um, I would be deeply reactive to what was being said and I would have to remove myself from the situation. It was very difficult for me to to just be grounded and level and diplomatic. And so... I knew something was 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 off, something was wrong. And I was saying to myself, okay, so I've just been through this experience. I had some uh, therapeutic support, some talk therapy throughout the process of going through it, but there's still this reactive, hypervigilant, um, on-edge uh, person that I am now in the wake of this experience. Now, how is it that I can be so cognizant of what I've been through and make so many lifestyle choices uh, from a place of intentionality to live differently and to do things differently, how am I still having this reactivity? And um, so I end up, uh, it was actually through um, Pete Bogosian, who's just become a good friend of mine. Uh, I end up meeting uh, a guy who uh, was making a documentary film and writing a book about this revolutionary treatment for PTSD. So I'm, I'm up in... Uh, I'm sat in a car park in my car in Tacoma of all places, and I'm on the phone with him. And he's talking to me about, you know, he's asking me, so what is your experience with PTSD? And what do you, what do you assume your thoughts about PTSD? So I, I give him a rundown of my life experiences, everything from uh, the, the sort of the early childhood situation of no contact uh, that I discussed uh, to um, uh, a long history of uh, psychological and emotional abuse, some physical abuse. Um, sexual violation from previous partners, like things like that. I had a lot of things happen to me over my life. And then a long 
period of high allostatic load, just intense stress, overworking, and then the grinding of the cancer situation for three years. So I tell him all of that. And I start talking about allostatic load and how I'd been doing a lot of my own research to kind of figure out, okay, um, what happens to someone who's experiencing extreme discomfort or even moderate discomfort over a long period of time? Is it possible that that could lead to symptoms that are very much like PTSD? And he says, aha, yes, and here's why. And he starts talking about the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight response. And if there is an injury to this railway station in the nerves called, uh, sorry, railway station in the neck called the stelet ganglion, which uh, kind of rests on either side of the voice box, um, this railway station essentially passes signals from the amygdala to the rest of the body. And if that gets injured through acute stress or high allostatic load, the fight or flight response gets stuck in an active state. And when it's in that state, you do not have access to your executive function. So essentially, you're operating on this crisis autopilot. And so you have reactivity, you have sleeplessness, you might have homicidal or suicidal tendencies, you have anxiety, you have hypervigilance. I had a lot of those symptoms. And um, what it's called in the context of the Green Berets is operator syndrome. And what that is, is it's a whole battery of discomforts that arises when a warfighter, uh, a Green Beret operative, is, is on deployment for too long. And they have the long median anxiety of high allostatic load, knowing that they could die at any moment, punctuated by moments of extreme terror, like an IED going off or a gunfight uh, with the enemy. Um, so basically, the idea being that if they can have this operator syndrome, anyone can have it because we all have the same nervous system. And if it gets injured and it produces a certain battery of symptoms, well, can that not be treated like any other physical injury to the body? So we're having this conversation and I'm practically finishing his sentences because I've done all of this research on my own to understand what happened to me during the cancer experience, how my body was impacted by that, and why I'm having this reactivity and this hypervigilance and all of the, the symptoms that I was experiencing. And he tells me about this gentleman in uh, Chicago named Dr. Eugene Lipov, who uh, discovered that if you take a $2 amount of general anesthesia, the same amount that goes into an, any epidural, and you introduce it into the stellate ganglion in the neck, you can power down the sympathetic nervous system for 15 minutes. And when it comes back online, it's at a baseline state. It's not stuck in that red alert, I must react to the saber-toothed tiger that's trying to kill me right now response. It's at neutral, at baseline. Um, so this just, when he described this thing to me, the hairs in the back of my neck went up. I just got goose flesh all over me because I just said, okay, this makes perfect sense. Is it possible that not even just the cancer situation I just emerged from, but an entire accumulation of my life experiences have injured my nervous system and what would it mean for me if I could heal that injury, power it down and come back up at baseline? So I said, I'm in. I want to, I want to work on this book. I want to, uh, to shoot this film for you. Let's, let's talk more. 
And so over the last year, this has been the principal project that I've been working on. And uh, in October of last year, I flew to Chicago and I had the treatment done myself. Because, you know, again, if I'm going to write about something or make a movie about something, I want to go through the whole process so I can understand it from the inside. Um, and night and day, I'm a completely different person now than I was then because I'm not having any of the PTSD symptoms. They're all gone. I have no hypervigilance, no reactivity. Um, and I've definitely been presented with situations of crisis since then. But I noticed that what happens now is I'm able to create a pause for myself and I don't go into this reactive state. Um, and I'm just generally a much more grounded person now than I was before I had the treatment. So we're, we're in the process of rebranding it. Um, but essentially what you do is you go in on day one and you have the right side done. They put you under and they introduce the anesthesia through a needle into the neck on the right side. That's all the adult trauma. That power is off 15 minutes. You wake back up, you have an emotional discharge. And for me, it came up as wailing, just extreme wailing, crying beside myself because it was allowing that part of my nervous system to finally release all of the accumulated adult trauma that I'd experienced up to that point that I'd never processed, right? Because you have to complete the trauma response in order for the system to power back down and say, threat's been eliminated, I can dump cortisol, and I can now move forward with, uh, well, from a place of, of more groundedness, I can move, move forward as normal. Then you go back the, the next day to do the left side, which is all the childhood stuff. Same thing. Put you under, introduce the anesthesia. You're out for 15 minutes. You wake back, up, wake back up and that thing is powered off. So you're able to have that discharge. So the even stronger response from the childhood side. So all of that stuff is coming up and I'm experiencing all of it in the moment. And then it just stabilizes and I go and I rest. And ever since my ability to respond to crisis uh, in a grounded way and from a place where I'm pausing and not reactive is actually present for the first time in my life. Now, you can't just go and do this thing and then, hey, everything's fine. It's all good. I no longer have to do any self-work. I'm fine. It doesn't work like that because for people who've never experienced baseline state like myself, I never experienced what that was like, you can fall apart. So I ended up, you know, I had to go and I had to do a lot of other work on top of that to actually process what I was experiencing emotionally, what had happened to me in my life, the things that I'd been through, developing boundaries, all of it. I'm still doing that work, but I'm finding that it's actually effective now, whereas before it wasn't because this thing was still inside me saying a saber-toothed tiger is about to eat you right now, Right. So I wasn't in a place where I could benefit from any other modality until I had this done. It sounds revolutionary. Like it allowed you to completely reset your nervous system. It also sounds like something that is reminiscent in some ways of the uh, psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, I'm curious, I have a few questions. Has it been, you know, have there been peer-reviewed trials? Um, has this been FDA approved? And do you know if it's ever been paired with psychotherapy? 
So there are some things I can say and some things I can't say just because I have an NDA. Uh, so until the um, until the the book and the film are both released, I have to be somewhat careful. I can say that uh, yes, it is uh, peer reviewed uh, and it has been uh, it has been peer reviewed by major scientists in the field. Um, we do have the the partnership of uh, both uh, Dr. Jay Faber and Daniel Amen, who are basically the godfathers of trauma science. Uh, talking about the procedure, we have Frank Ochberg as well. He's the guy who um, defined Stockholm syndrome. Uh, he's very uh, well aware of the procedure and its findings um, and the implications of it. So as far as the scientific community goes, I mean, this thing is being looked at by some of the top minds in the field. Uh, FDA approval, not yet. Has it been paired with other um, modalities um, of a psychoactive nature? There have been some studies done uh, with ketamine also being used in conjunction with this that have been very positive. Uh, one of the Green Berets uh, that has really become my best friend now, uh, he swears by it. He says that it really helped him with uh, just a lot of the hypervigilance that arises from being in a combat situation. Uh, so he had ketamine treatments done on top of this, uh, and it's been very productive for him to uh, to go that route. Um, what I would say is that um, certainly with uh, things like psilocybin, um, they I mean they will definitely have a similar effect. The problem is is that it's temporary, and the difference between this and a psilocybin or a ketamine is that this is like fixing that broken leg. If you don't set the leg right, it's never going to heal right. Um, whereas if you're using a psychoactive substance to achieve the same effect, you're kind of dealing with the symptoms temporarily, but you still have that broken leg. So that would be the principal difference. They, they get you to the same place, but one is about restoring the natural basic functionality of the system rather than just dealing with the uh, overall discomfort. I hope that explanation makes sense. So well, I have when you to describe kind of it, it really does sound like a, the reset button for the nervous system. Right. And I understand right. that, that that's risky because it brings up all the all the stress that's been that you've acclimated to comes to the surface. And I imagine people would benefit from, you know, having a, a therapist to help them in the in the wake of all that. Um, I'm going to have to invite uh, Dr. Eugene Lipov on my show to talk about that treatment. And um, can you tell our listeners, what is the name of, or does that documentary have a name yet? You said it's coming out next spring? Well, the, the book is coming out next spring. The book is called The Invisible Machine. Uh, we're, we're entitling the documentary by the same name, uh, The Invisible Machine. We're hoping for a fall release next year, but it might not be out till the following spring. Documentaries okay. take a long time to make. so. I am very curious if this type of treatment would benefit the condition I have, POTS, because uh, I was mentioning to you before we started recording that I found doing float tanks really beneficial. And it, it feels to me like when I do a float tank, like it's a reset for my nervous system. And afterward, I come out and my symptoms are greatly reduced for a day or two. Um, and so I wonder, I mean, this is also an, a reset for the nervous system. POTS is a disorder of the autonomic nervous system. I'm, I'm really curious. I'm going to have to look into this more. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. If you like what you're hearing, now's a great time to like, subscribe, follow, rate, review, or share. You can also support the podcast by visiting sometherapist.com slash shop where you will find goods and services I have personally curated to support your well-being and enrich your life. We're just building the shop, so check back periodically and feel free to suggest recommendations.
All right, now back to the show. Okay, so what I would say about my journey through cancer, through this radical authenticity, through actually embracing myself and cultivating some boundaries for myself for the first time in my life, which I never had before. I never had healthy boundaries. Um, and so I'm, 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 I arrived at this place where I was looking at the industry. I went through a period of um, what I can only describe as anger and, and revulsion, uh, toward, di- directed mainly at the the business culture and work culture that that I had come from, because I, I I felt that it was, of course, I would choose an industry that was so fundamentally repressive in terms of people's ability to self express, because that was the family that I came from, right? That was the culture that I came from. It was familiar to me. So I said, okay, um, if I'm going to do this kind of work. I really need to change the way that I'm engaging with it. And it has to be on my terms. And so I need to really filter out who I'm compatible with and who I'm incompatible with. But I also did this this audit of some of my experiences in the industry and the way that I'd been treated by people who profess to have a very uh, forward-thinking, progressive uh, worldview but they would treat me like garbage. They would treat me like uh, I'm not an individual who has his own unique experiences because they had a certain experience marketed to them uh, that was the standard um, experience for people with my skin tone. And they did not have the curiosity or humility to ever ask me, if any of that was true, or to get to know me as an individual. And I, I felt that that in, uh, in lockstep with uh, just being part of this culture of um, lack of curiosity and censoriousness, I just said, no, I, I'm not, I'm not going to be in, in that culture and repress myself to make people who aren't even curious about who I am comfortable or feel good about their vacuous virtue signaling. That's really what it was. So it was me making a promise to myself to say, I'm going to show up and be that gadfly and actually challenge people's perceptions here because my life depends on it. You know, if I, if I had this, this cancer experience and I feel like I got this, this, this whole thing developed in me because of my long history of repression, well, then me repressing is lethal to me going forward. And I have to take that very seriously. So that, that, that's kind of how it got started. But then I think there was also a part of me too that was always frustrated by the reductive nature of people who have that mindset and that worldview that, 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 we're, that we're calling the woke worldview. They're so lacking in curiosity, not even just intellectual curiosity, but curiosity about other human beings. Yeah, and they, they just, they lack this, this sensory apparatus to be able to handle complexity. Everything just seems to be reductive with them. And I found that really frustrating because I, you know, I can remember, you know, being a kid in the 80s and 90s, 
And I was always the kid who liked heavy metal D&D and Hammer Horror films. And, and most of the places I lived growing up, no one cared. That was not a problem. But only in America was that ever something that I had to justify to people. I had to explain to people why I'm wearing an Iron Maiden shirt or um, why I sound the way that I sound. The things that I was into, there was always this sort of racial justification uh, calculus that had to be played out in every social interaction in in the States. And so when I'm working on these sets and I'm dealing with these woke progressives, it was like being back in that environment, having to justify being a unique individual to these people who have no curiosity at all about my human experience. So I kind of tapped into that sort of metalhead punk rock spirit in a way too. And I just said, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to be me. And I don't care if that makes you uncomfortable, mate, because my life depends on it. You know, me going forward in the world depends upon me being maybe a little inconvenient to your perception of the world. And you have the opportunity to get to know me if you want to, if you can humble yourself and if you can display some curiosity but I'm not going to self-censor and I'm not going to repress just so that I can show up in a way that you can handle. That's really what it was. We should probably clarify for people who are listening and not watching that you're black because <laughs> they might not know <laughs> Black <that>. Jewish, <laughs> which is like, I'm a walking contradiction. <laughs> well, and like yeah. for listeners who are just, you know, they, they haven't seen the YouTube thumbnail or the Instagram graphic and they don't know who Cor Corey Drayton is, they might be surprised to find that out, right? Which is just uh, an opportunity to become more aware of those those biases that people hold, as you're saying, especially in America. And, and you get to see that as someone who's lived in different places, that, um, that there is this kind of narrow expectation of how a Black person thinks and feels and views the world and talks and what they're interested in, right? And I think you and I, mm -hmm. in our own ways, are both very critical of of those ideologies and how kind of limited and backwards they are. Um, so I was just kind of laughing the whole time because I was like, some people don't know when he talks about his skin tone what <laughs> what skin tone he has. Right. So well, it, it, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, and, that, and that's just it. I mean, it's 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 a very American problem. It really is um, because I, I I've never throughout my whole life, I never experienced this in any other part of the world I've ever been to, ever. It just, it doesn't come up. No one cares. And, you know, I tell people now, you could, you could look at me and you could make 10 assumptions about who I am on the basis of how I look. Eight of them would be wrong. And I think, I think it's that way with everyone. So I think, you know, we have this massive opportunity to actually get to know people um, from a, from a place of curiosity by just asking them questions about what they like, what they don't like, who are they, what's their life been like, where have they been, what have they seen? That's far more interesting than looking at someone and saying, oh, you have skin tone X, Y, or Z, therefore I can fill in the blanks for you without even asking you um, what your experiences are, what your politics are, what your worldview is. We shouldn't be reducing each other uh, in, in that way. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's I, I think um, it, when it comes to this problem in particular, I don't know why I couldn't talk about it before the cancer experience. I mean, I think, again, a lot of it was just me wanting to take care of other people, right? Me not wanting to be inconvenient to other people. Um, that's completely out of my system now. Now I'm, I'm really embracing... Um, 
being authentically myself, even if it makes people uncomfortable. And I mean, anyone who's spent any time with me knows that I'm a very civilized, classy person. Uh, I'm not necessarily uh, the Sid Vicious in the room. But at the same time, I, I'm not going to hold back about my experiences in the world and my perspective on things anymore. Um, and I think that comes down to owning myself as an individual. I don't care about race. It, it doesn't exist to me. It's, it's stupid. It's completely ridiculous. I mean, I, um, having a, a multi-ethnic uh, identity in and of myself, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm black, white, and Jewish. So, you know, be that as it may, it's like I, I'm, I'm a walking contradiction. Uh, I'm, I'm a cultural orphan. So all I can do is identify myself from my own point of origin as me, as Corey. Um, anybody who tries to put me in a box, good luck. You're not going to succeed. Um, so really embracing that as the way I walk in the world, it also just feels good. Mm. It feels good to be an iconoclast. It feels good to be a complex human being. We're all complex human beings, right? So we all have the opportunity to challenge the boxes that uh, the society that we're currently living are currently living in and experiencing is trying to shove us in all the time without knowing the first thing about who we actually are. Um, so I don't I don't know why people have kind of lost that punk rock spirit, um, but I will never allow myself to lose that spirit ever again. Mm. Well said. You know it's. It's funny you said Sid Vicious, and I'm wondering how many people know who he is. I actually do, and I'm I'm not somebody who knows a lot of celebrity. Like, name a celebrity that everybody knows who they are. I don't know who they are, you know, but I know <laughs> Sid Vicious because uh, Sex Pistols, right? That's Lead right. singer of the Sex Pistols. Yeah, I was I was a punk rock kid, no, no. and it's funny you talk about keeping that punk spirit, and it's it's so funny because I have zero interest in punk music and have for a long time, although I was a punk kid. But I do think that some of that spirit stuck with me. Um, I think that some of who I was as a teenager has shaped, you know, some of who I am today. And it's funny that you say that because Portland is a place that's, you know, people listen to punk and metal. It's, it's not uncommon here. And yet there is such a conformity to the views that they think are nonconformist. Right. Um, but I just love that, that we got to explore this whole beautiful hero's journey that you went through that really had nothing to do with the cultural critiques in, in some ways, but then, you know, you come out the other side feeling blessed to be alive, feeling determined to never abandon yourself again. And then part of how it manifests is that you feel like this deep compulsion from within to speak the truth as you see it. And when you see things that are inauthentic around you to question that. And I, I think that's a real gift. I can imagine it making people nervous to be around because you kind of reflect, are you being authentic or are you just repeating what members of your tribe are saying? But I think, I, I hope that people hear your message with relief because it's, it's my view that um, one of the reasons I see the culture going backward in terms of race relations is that I think people are walking on eggshells more, not less. Um, and, you know, I, I see well-meaning white liberals almost doubling down 
on, oh, we have to, you know, black people aren't showing up in our workplace. So we have to do even more to prove how unracist we are. And, and like, here you are coming along saying, no, please don't. No, really, please don't. <laughs> like, yeah. like, please just like treat me like a normal person, maybe not like your, you know, pet that you need to coax. Like, um, yeah. and, and I hope that some people who hear your message, whether it's in this podcast or in the work you've done that addresses this issue more, that they can kind of breathe a sigh of relief because it's like, okay, we've been getting it wrong. Someone sold us this false bill of goods that to the way to be a good person is to adopt this particular set of understandings and beliefs and practices around race relations. Um, but, you know, if I've been sold this under the narrative that a, that any race should ever be privileged above any other race under any circumstances. Like in this case that we have a view that one race is a victim and therefore they need to take priority. Like, you know, first of all, I've been, I've been sold that narrative and I've been sold the idea that, you know, these, everyone who falls into this category is really struggling, really suffering, really victimized, and that I have a lot of work to do and I got to fix this somehow. And me and all my people got to fix this somehow. You know, if I've been believing that, and that's actually like a pretty stressful belief to hold, right? Because then I, I, I can't just let it all hang out. I can't just be myself and have a normal relationship. I have to think about things in terms of power. I have to worry about if I'm offending you, if I'm saying the wrong thing. I have to, you know, do more DEI trainings in the workplace to make sure everybody, you know, if I've been thinking all that and stressing myself out and not actually feeling like I'm getting to enjoy a more relaxed, diverse workplace or whatever it is, um, you know, maybe, maybe I'm in doing some things that are unnecessary, that are stressing me out, that are stressing everyone around me out. Like here's an olive branch. Here's an opportunity to let it go and realize like people of sound mind, um, are not asking, are not really asking me to do any of that. It's not necessary. I don't need to carry the burden of the guilt of my ancestors. I don't need to go out of my way to please people. And and I would just love to see everyone just relax a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think your message, it's 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 a message of liberation. It's a story of your own liberation from the patterns that you had internalized of ways that you were stressing yourself out and overworking and people pleasing and repressing your truth and repressing your creativity and really what makes you so remarkable. And I think by doing that, you also liberate others. And now I sound like some trite Audre Lorde quote or something like that, but I mean, it's, it's just coming out spontaneously like that, that yeah. I think you're, you're giving people permission to breathe and to think differently and to let go of some things that aren't working. Um, so Corey, I am, I'm just so happy to meet you and have this conversation. I'm really delighted that you live in Portland and you, you know, some other cool people here. Um, we should probably wrap up. So you are up to a whole bunch of things. Um, tell people where they can find you and, uh, what are the future projects that they should be looking out for? Yeah, sure. Um, so right now I, I'm still very much in the process of rebuilding my life after everything that I've been through with the cancer. So I'm not 100% out there full time, but you will be able to find me from time to time uh, opposite Travis Brown on his uh, Signal Productions 
productions. Uh, I'm also going to be doing some more work with Pete Bogosian on uh, his network going forward. Um, right now, when it comes to my own content, uh, I'm a contributor at Alternate Current Radio. Uh, we have a whole host of shows over there. Uh, the show that I appear uh, on the most is called The Boiler Room. Uh, we do it live every Thursday night. And we talk about issues of geopolitics. Uh, we talk about psychology, whatever's going on in the news. Basically, it's uh, it's uh, how to defend yourself from predatory mass media. That's kind of the, the the main thing I'm working on because I think there's a whole host of of different issues that all intersect uh, that are worthy of uh, analysis and examination from the standpoint of being a radical individual and thinking for yourself. Uh, and I also do a lot of shows over at uh, TNT Radio. Usually uh, I'll hop on the Brian McLean show uh, once a week. Uh, we do that uh, in the mornings uh, from 8 until about 11, uh, that specific time. And then occasionally I'm also in Joseph uh, Arthur's Technicolor Dreamcast, where we talk mainly uh, about issues of wokeness and pop culture and the identity addiction uh, that that plays out in that dynamic and kind of how to regain your sense of self and, you know, take your authenticity back. So I have a lot of things going on. I think uh, eventually uh, I will uh, have a platform that I devote more time to, but right now I'm mainly just a working cinematographer, working artist, trying to rebuild my uh, foundations here in Portland. So my, um, in terms of my, my work in this space, it's going to be limited for the time being. But hopefully the next time we talk, uh, I'll have something completely built up and ready to show. That's thanks exciting. for having me on. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, uh, and you're not on social media from what I can tell. Uh, I am. I just, uh, I, I just keep my social media really, really private. I'm just super selective about uh, just that part of my life. So I, I turned a lot of the, the, what used to be public facing stuff for my own business, I turned all of that in, inwards so I could heal and rebuild. Um, I, I can be found. I'm just, I don't post often. I'm a super private person and I find, and this is a whole other can of worms, but so when I engage with social media, I don't feel great coming away. So mm -hmm. I have to limit my exposure. That's, mm -hmm. that's my mindset. Well, your whole journey that you talked about today, really, it makes sense that you would decide to have boundaries around how you spend your energy and who you interact with them. Okay. Right. And you have books coming out. I'm not sure when we're going to release this episode, but your current plan is to release uh, that book that you are one of three authors of um, on that SGB treatment. That'll be coming out in the spring of 2023. And that's, I'm sorry, the something machine. The no, it's called the invisible machine. Yes. And I was a contributor machine. to the book. Yeah. Contributor to the book. Okay. And your book coming out after that is, uh, what can you tell us about that one? Uh, there's not too much I can say right now because that's that's in the early stages. Okay. Um, I would imagine the release would be 2024 because we're really uh, allowing at least 12 months just for the writing process. But um, again, if we speak again, I hope that we speak again, I'll have more to tell as that uh, project takes off. Perfect. I'm so excited to see what you go on to create. All right, Corey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been great talking to you and uh, hopefully we can do it again. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast with Stephanie Wynn, LMFT. This podcast is produced by Eric and Amber Beals at Different Mix. Special thanks to the talented musician Joey Pecorero for our theme song, Half Awake. 
At SomeTherapist.com, you can find more information on any topic, guest, resource, product, or service you've heard of here today. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram at SomeTherapist. If you would like to ask a question, suggest a topic, be a guest, or invite me to speak, you can email us at hello at SomeTherapist.com. You can also send us a voice memo with your question, and we just might play it. Of course, just because I'm some therapist doesn't mean I'm your therapist. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you need help, ask your doctor or browse your local therapists online. And whatever you do next, please take care of yourself. Eat well, sleep well, move your body, get outside, and tell someone you love them. You're worth it.